Hello and welcome to Tokyo on Fire. My name is Timothy Langley and today I'm joined by commentators Dr. Nancy Snow and Michael Chuchek, both of them advisors at Langley Esquire. Today our burning issue is collective defense. The issue is formed on the Japanese Constitution, specifically Article 9, that highlights the use of force and military armaments for uh, the defense and protection of Japan. And what the Constitution says uh, in English is that the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation, and the threat or use of force as means of settling international disputes, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. And in light of that, the Japan Self-Defense Forces have been in existence for over 30 years, we're coming up on the 70th anniversary, uh, the end of the Pacific War, and uh, currently uh, the Japan Self-Defense Forces, the military might of the Japanese nation, is about seventh overall globally. And it is um, widely believed that just the uh, naval forces of Japan exceed the collective power of all of the United States allies in naval might. Uh, so today what we'd like to talk about is where we are with uh, the Japanese collective, the issue of uh, collective defense in light of the restrictions of the Japanese constitution which pretty clearly restrict not only uh, building an army but even having uh, the ability to project that force offensively anywhere else in the world. So the diet is now in a 150-day uh, uh, diet session. Uh, we're two weeks into that, and there are several bills. There's lots of conversations going on about the revision of the Constitution. There have been many attempts to modify the Constitution, and it is uh, widely believed to be way too complicated. So what the, the process of, of addressing it have, have eventually become are to um, reinterpret certain segments of the Constitution. And the current Prime Minister, Mr. Abe, has... Uh, made a certain success there, and um, over the last maybe eight or ten months since a diet um, a cabinet hearing in, uh, in July, has uh, forwarded the notion of collective self-defense, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. I'm joined today by two guests, Dr. Nancy Snow. Dr. Nancy Snow is uh, the Chief Advisor on Public Relations, Media Relations, Public Diplomacy, and Leadership Branding. Dr. Snow is a two-time recipient of the Fulbright Fellowship and as a student of the Federal Republic of Germany and a Fulbright Professor of International Relations at Sofia University. She is an, currently an Abbey Fellow at Keio University's Institute of Media and Communications Research, where she is conducting research for a forthcoming book on Japan's national brand, Global Image and Reputation. So, Nancy, I'd like to leave with you. Since... Um, the issue of collective self-defense is a huge issue, particularly in light of what's going on in the Middle East. Right. You didn't bring up ISIS, but I will, because, of course, the time of this crisis, I think it really caught the Japanese people by surprise, and even Prime Minister Abe, because we're talking about when he went on his six-day tour of the Middle East. This was in mid-January. And he made this pledge of $200 million, as we all know now, in Cairo at a business and investment conference. So it wasn't really in the context at all 
of defense and military. However, of course, ISIS, knowing what we do about its own brand, it took that as an opportunity then to uh, represent these hostages who were being held for months behind the scenes very quietly. And I think it, it raised the Article 9 uh, issue in, in dispute uh, to, to a whole new level that has a lot more emotion, a lot more fear going forward. And I guess the question I have is, are we going to leave this critical issue in the hands of just the diet? Or what role does the public play here? Because public opinion is decidedly against tinkering with Article 9. It's sure been is. a long-time enhancement of the national brand of Japan. And, but again, I think that the, the tragedy around the Japanese hostages has uh, really brought to light this issue, and it's impacting people who are otherwise not terribly involved in politics and international relations. Yes, I agree with you. And the issue uh, before the prime minister went to Cairo, it, it seemed like that was something of a catalyst, and things just really really ignited after that. Um, I'd like to get your opinion, Michael. Uh, Michael Chuchek is the adjunct fellow at the Temple University Japan Institute of Contemporary Asian Studies and is the well-known author of Shisaku, one of the foremost blogs covering politics in Japan. Michael, Nancy was talking about the public opinion and the role of public opinion and uh, that impacts, you know, diet politics and the vote and, you know, how I mean, I, I don't even think it's conceivable that uh, they can revise the Constitution, Article 9 of the Constitution, but there's just tremendous push to do that. Well, there's a tremendous push among Diet members, and we all knew that coming in. Uh, when, after the election that just took place in December, the Diet members were asked by the major news organizations, where do you stand on various issues? And many of those news organizations, particularly those that are not entirely supportive of the government, such as the Asahi Shimbun, ran parallel public opinion polls, finding out how the public feels about exactly the same issues. And certainly in the case of collective self-defense, the differences between the Diet members, particularly the members of the LDP, and the public were stark, where you had 84, 85% support of immediate revision of the Constitution among Diet members. The public, the numbers are in 30% of the voters. You're talking about completely uh, disassociated uh, groups, even though ostensibly those diet members are supposed to be representatives of the people, but the people and the diet members are on different planets. How rare <laughs> right. in Japan is that? Is that uh, something out of out of the ordinary? It's actually the historically the the diet members, of course, have been very careful about whether or not they reflect their, their, their constituencies. They do in face election. And unfortunately, we don't have so much of that pressure on the Diet members because we don't have an effective opposition. Right. There's no alternative, really, to the LDP member that's in your district. So that you may feel differently, but you have to make a choice between a person who will have no power at all if, you, if your district elects an opposition member, it means your district will not get any of the goodies, your district will be ignored, the people in your district will not be able to interact with the center the way that 
an LDP district would. Mm -hmm. So in terms of self-interest, even though you may disagree with the person, you may even dislike them personally, you're going to go for that LDP member. And at that point, their politics, their individual politics, can be very different from your own, but you really don't have a choice. It's power politics all over again. And I think uh, this is um, probably a good issue for us to actually focus on as a topic of burning issues uh, in another session. because many people believe that the last election has pretty much crystallized, once again, this LDP-centric form of government. Um, But getting back to the collective defense issue, um, right now the the issues of redefining uh, Article 9 really mean just reinterpreting what is written there. And um, there are a couple of issues that they're talking about now. One is um, projecting um, collectively um, uh, the, the military or the more likely the naval power of, of, of Japan in certain situations. And can we talk about that and what kind of dynamic is at play there, what kind of words and language they are considering to be interpreted so that the laws can be formed to meet that interpretation? In this case, the, the matter of extension uh, there are already on the books laws uh, from many years ago uh, about the areas around Japan. Mm-hmm. And when discussions have happened about contingencies, it's been, everyone's been thinking about the coast of China or, more importantly, North Korea and South Korea and a, a some kind of war on that peninsula and what Japan would be doing. And Normally, what would happen in the Diet is they would talk about the areas about Japan because they didn't want to get the governments of any of those countries upset that we were discussing thoughts about sending Japanese troops into those areas where historically they have tremendous resistance because of what happened in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. That has always been discussed as the areas around Japan. But what the LDP is now saying is that that's not enough to defend in a world of terrorism, in the world of transnational cybersecurity, and cybersecurity, in a world where Japan's oil must go a very long distance through waters that are no longer friendly, that's where this the problems are becoming very apparent in this concept of extending defense past what used to be a thousand nautical miles from Japan, and that's where we're going to see a real jam up at this diet session in between the Komeito, the the coalition partner, and the LDP. I have a question because I'm not sure. When did the impetus uh, for this change to Article 9, when did it really take off? Is it under Prime Minister Abe? That's one question. The second is, after the deaths of the two Japanese hostages, the argument I heard from Abe was that, well, Going forward, we might have had an opportunity. He, he framed it in terms of maybe we could have had our defense forces go in, sort of help to mm-hmm. spring loose the, the hostages. Well, don't you need permission from the whatever the overarching government is? If you're talking about Syria and ISIS-controlled territory, the coalition that's already been there doesn't even have access right. to them. That's why these videos keep popping up, because it's a total breakdown in society. So he was using that argument going forward to make the change, but that seemed unrealistic. But to go back to my first question, when did all of this momentum get going? Uh, did it begin? Was it mostly an LDP-centered 
Um, let me take the first stab at this, if you don't mind, Michael. Um, it started as soon as the paper was dry on the Treaty of San Francisco. Okay, so um, essentially the, Japan, the Japanese Constitution, which many people say um, um, inaccurately, I believe, that the Constitution was written by uh, the, the occupying forces of General MacArthur. Um, I think it was, um, it was guided in that way, but it was addressed uh, with Japanese um, uh, political thought leaders and uh, lawyers and um, members of the parliament. The nation was defeated, that's true. But the, the concept of we don't want to be in a war again, we, we never want to um, tempt that kind of an outcome again. We've, I mean, we're a defeated nation, almost our, our culture and our, our, our history has been damaged as a result of that. So that Article 9 was inserted then, and the idea was how, how is Japan going to be able to protect itself, and of course Big Brother, uh, the United States, would provide that kind of defense. And it's very expensive, and it's, um, it requires a, a, an awful lot. And as a consequence of that, Japan could focus on other things. And the economic miracle, the, 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 the just unbelievable growth that Japan went through, uh, is something that you know brought people like us into this country. I mean, it's just it's a miracle. It's never happened in human history, and one of the reasons why is because there was a an umbrella, a military umbrella, placed over uh, Japan, and it still exists today. And that is why the an, another perhaps potential uh, issue for us, Okinawa, um, in another burning issue. Um, that's why Okinawa is so hot and such a such a flashpoint. It's because um, Okinawa bears the brunt of hosting the United States military uh, presence in Japan. Is it 80% of the forces? About 80%. Okay. Um, hmm. And it's, um, some people say it's, it's outlived its, its usefulness, but I think the American military will say no, it hasn't. It, uh, uh, it's geopolitically um, strategic. So uh, that, that issue, that irritation of we need to be, um, as a nation, we need to be able to protect ourselves and to have a, uh, a military might so that um, neighbors who might want to encroach on us, for example, to steal our coral or to uh, pump uh, oil out of our uh, territorial waters, we can have a, a legitimate threat to them. And that threat is being provided by the United States. And that that provision of safety and that security provided by the U.S. alliance, um, I think the Japanese are questioning because look what's happened in Ukraine, look what's ha happened in Syria. They're wondering now if, if really push comes to shove and the, and the Chinese are really, I mean, they're going double digit in their military spending, uh, whereas Jap Japanese uh, traditional military spending has been less than 2% per year. Uh, so there is a threat there. There is a threat on the, uh, the Korean Peninsula as well. And uh, I think it's, it's reasonable for Japan to want that kind of security. Their, their hands are, are tied. And so this issue, it comes up all the time. Um, with the current prime minister, he is a little bit uh, leaning to the right. Um, and it's presented some, some problems for him, for his cabinet. But it's also present, presented some opportunities. It's interesting you say a little bit leaning to the right. I mean, that may be true. I think there's a lot of pragmatism to Abe, but in terms of the 
vocal <laughs> right wing, more far right uh, mm -hmm. support out there, he's under a certain pressure, maybe from Washington, but also from this sort of bellowing uh, right wing. Uh, sometimes I call them henchmen, but <laughs> constituency. Under tremendous pressure yes. from the United States. Right. Yeah, and when you talk about pressure from the United States and also doubt about you know, the United States' commitment to defending Japan, the doubts first came from the United States in regards to the Gulf War mm. in, 19, in 1990 and 91, where this alliance, and it's supposed to be an alliance, did not function in a way that uh, the United States liked. Certainly, Japan, paid by paying $13 billion, bankrolled the first Gulf War. But bankrolling it was exactly the role that the United States, well, community, in terms of Japan relationships, did not want to emphasize. But that was the one that came out of, di of diet deliberations. That was the only thing that the current, uh, that at that time, uh, balance between the socialists and the LDP could come up with as a way of Japan contributing. Later on, Japan wine sweepers did go and clear mines, but that was after hostilities had ended. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, the United States was the one that was saying, you know, what, what's in it for us? We're not getting out of you what we need. Yes, you're providing us places to put our, our ships and our planes, and that's fine, and that's the letter of the, the alliance, but we really need more. And if we're going to go before Congress and ask to keep on maintaining the forces here, we need to see more from you. And so the, the, the United States provided a lot of the impetus. And there were persons here in Japan, uh, basically a, a younger generation of persons who are now in their 60s and 70s, but at that time were in their 40s and 50s and were in the bureaucracy or in the political parties who were born after World War II, who did not have the burdens of World War II on their shoulders. And they were saying, yeah, we should be contributing. And so there was a melding of minds at that mm. point. Mm -hmm. here's, here's a tee-up for you, Nancy, because mm. this is such a huge issue. Um, just imagine the, um, the public sentiment of the neighbors throughout Asia to a growing military, a Japanese military might. You know, they, especially if they use Legitimately, the rising sun flag, um, it is just uh, what a public relations disaster that would be. And, um, you know, the comfort women issue, the, the dodging on uh, so many issues related to the war. Now we've got the 70th anniversary coming up. The emperor is going to be making a statement, and the prime minister will make a statement, and one would hope that they're, they're blended, they, they are in, in unity, but you never know. Um, this is, uh, this is huge. You know what was noticeable in the midst of last, well, I should say last week, days before we got the news about Kenji Goto, who, again, had he been returned home to a hero's welcome, it would have, we would have been talking about something else, probably. But the Thursday before we got the news, Sunday, February 1st, here was Abe expressing shock at this verbiage in this McGraw-Hill textbook, which is now in its sixth edition, <laughs> and they're having this debate in, in the about diet. About comfort women. Right, mm -hmm. about comfort women. And it, it just 
struck me as sort of a, an odd segue for the prime minister. And it will go into play with the 2020 hindsight into how he handled the entire two-week hostage crisis. Why this diversion to protecting one's honor? I think there are a lot of other issues at play, larger issues having to do with humiliation at the end of the war. I mean, of course, losing the war, but also a sense of we want to get back our sense of pride because they've had the so-called lost decades of uh, decline and uh, feeling like they're sort of shrinking, not just in terms of the mm -hmm. fertility rate, but also in terms of the region with the rising China. Having taught in China in 07, I saw the Chinese were going around feeling like, hey, this is our century, the 21st century. So I think Japan is reevaluating really its its role here in the region. And you've got some messy, dark history there that some would like to cleanse and, and make pure again. But the realists are saying, we've got to look at the whole landscape of, of what really happened. And it's, it's just so many contested narratives yeah. taking place. Well, even so many kids who are growing up, the kids that we're talking about now who say, yes, we want to have a role, they don't know anything. They don't know anything about the, the pre-war, the triggers for even the war, what happened during the war. Um, the, the, their, their textbooks and their, their teaching begins kind of after that and it glosses over it. If you've ever visited Hiroshima, it's a, it's a, it's a very impactful um, tour to go there and to see that. But you hear, if you're speaking Japanese, if you can understand Japanese, what the tour guides are saying to the, the kids that are looking at, at, the, um, at the displays and at the artifacts, you know, still criticizing the United States for, for this dastardly act. And, of course, everybody's very sad and weeping, and you're sitting there as an American and getting bad shots. Can I add an anecdote to that? Mm -hmm. Just because you all, I really defer to you as the long-term Japanese experts. I came here in the summer of 1993. I already had a PhD in international relations, but I arrive here. My understanding of Japan is at that time entirely in terms of being victimized, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Everywhere I went, I wanted to apologize to the American, I mean, to the Japanese people. I was not aware of Japan's wartime history. It just was not my specialty. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's also not something that people are gonna be talking about readily in conversation. I was visiting the ministries, but I was very cognizant of asking for an apology on my behalf as a US citizen. And it, it just, I remember hearing a woman say that that was then, this is now. And mm -hmm. it, it sort of, I wonder sometimes why is Japan worried about sort of lifting the lid off of some of this history? Because every country has a dark history. I know very well from the United States. It's a mixed bag. I don't know of any country. Maybe we can single out Costa the Rica. The United States has <laughs> nothing to be ashamed of. Those Indians yeah. did it to themselves. <laughs> so. in, and, and the immediacy and the, the continuity of it is what's so astonishing. But yesterday in the Diet, the members of the main opposition party, the, the, the DBJ, the Democratic Party of Japan, kept needling Prime Minister Abe to get him to say what in English is three words, which is mistaken policies of the past. Mm -hmm. That in the Murayama statement, 
1994, I'm sorry, 95, apologizing for Japan's invasion and imperialism on the Asian continent, he uses this mistaken national policies, mistaken national policies line. And since Abe has been prime minister, both in 2006, 2007, and now since 2013, he's been asked repeatedly in the Diet, what does that phrase mean to you? Mm-hmm. And he's pushed it off constantly. And then they ask, well, then are you going to include it in your 70th anniversary statement? And he pushes off that question. He has a great deal of pride, hokori is the Japanese word, regarding Japan's achievements even in the 1930s and 1940s. That Japan, in, in what one professor has called nostalgic nationalism, was doing nothing different from any other imperialist power and has nothing to be ashamed of. And there's no mistake in its national policies. But in the Murayama Statement, which Abe in this diet sessions has said he will continue, he will follow, infuriating the nation's uh, arch-conservatives in the process, he has said he's going to do that. He's going to include it and make it a part of his 70th anniversary statement. And the opposition has said, including these words? And he is just seized up every time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I agree. Japan has so much to be proud of. And uh, as a nation, it is strong. It is, um, it's got a dynacism that is uh, just captivating. Most of the people that I know who have come to Japan for stints, maybe two or three years, and they go back, there's something that remains with them uh, about this country and about their experience here. There's really something very special about it. But coming to terms with what has gone on in the past, I think, um, and this is, this is right up your, your alley, Nancy, the, the branding and the, and the projection of what, who we are and what we stand for. And I don't know, I think uh, a lot of people just would like to say, just apologize, just say you're sorry and then we can get on with it. And I don't think that quite works, but um, it, is a, it, it is a huge national branding image that I don't know if they've really put a lot of effort into. Mm. I'm not sure if just words alone, but gestures and nonverbals, which are a big part of demonstrative communication. But I come from a part of the United States, uh, in, the, in the southern part of the United States, where we've had to go through these gradations and how we uh, are seen. In, because of in the Civil War? The Civil War, the Civil Rights Movement, um, the uh, Jim Crow laws, and uh, sort of coming up kind of behind the rest of the country and race relations. But I, I've had to deal with brand at, at a very personal level from the time I was very young because I have an accent from that part of the United States. So it's sort female. of a giveaway. <laughs> and you're a PhD and, yeah. <laughs> and, and so I, I often say that there's no taboo topic with, with me. I'll talk about anything. But there are certainly a lot of taboo topics in, in many circles, and Japan is no exception here. So sometimes there's a part of me that thinks, yeah, go ahead. Why is this so difficult? And I, I keep coming back to a, a psychology and then a sociology, mm-hmm. too. And uh, that, that certainly plays a part because it's it just seems to be difficult to apologize if you view it in terms of 
weakness. That it's somehow going to weaken you personally and weaken you as a country. So I'm getting, I'm sounding like a psychiatrist, which I have no training in that whatsoever. But I do think that there are collective wounds mm-hmm. in Japan and throughout the world. And we're seeing those take place before our eyes, how people, how nations are handling it. And I, I really think this year is, is so critical. We're kind of sitting on the edge of our seats now anticipating the statement from Shinzo Abe when I think we need to have a larger national conversation about where does Japan want to go in the future beyond Abe as a politician. He's not going to be prime minister forever, Mm -hmm. but we are putting a lot of pressure on him. I don't envy the position he's in, but I think that when you put all your eggs in one basket in, in, in the sense of waiting to hear from the prime minister, what other cues are we missing? And regionally speaking, as somebody who comes from cultural affairs and educational exchange, I would love to get more people involved in this regionally. Mm-hmm. So nationally, but also regionally. Because Japan really, uh, in, in many parts of Asia, is a very, very strong, positive role model for, for Asia. It's not all just mired in the past. Mm-hmm. But collective security now brings up the past immediately. Immediately, Because right. the Japan Self-Defense Forces have never hurt anybody. But uh. if they're going to be involved on a level of, let's say there is an American ship that is sailing on international waters, that ship is fired on by a third party. The Japanese Self-Defense Forces legally, currently, have no right to fire on that third party to, to sink their vessel or to stop that shore battery, whatever it is, to protect the American vessel. Legally, of course we know in practical terms the United States-Japan's alliance would have no meaning whatsoever if they in fact did that, mm-hmm. they did, which is mean not react. They would obviously react, but legally they don't have a standing for that. However, if you're going to start killing people, and the SDF has never killed anyone, you have to be able to present it as we're doing it for this reason. Mm-hmm. And currently, it's a negative that's coming in from South Korea, coming in from Chinese, f- which for their own interests portray whatever move outward Japan may make as the reassertion of Japanese imperialism, of Japanese militarism. So unless the Japan has government has a story saying we're doing this because collective security falls apart as a, a, a simple diplomatic issue. I agree. To wrap it up, um, collective self-defense. Realistically, is it something that is doable and manageable within the next, let's say, four years or 10 years? And I think probably within four years, uh, the answer is no. There are too many laws. There are too many, there's too much uh, logistics um, just, just the regulations and the, the legal structure needs to be changed. That will take a couple of years. But we, we're not even ready for that. Psychologically, the, the country's not ready for that. But what do you think? Realistically, collective self-defense for Japan in any meaningful way? We're, you and I are not in the diet. But the people who are in the diet, and a lot of them are members of the LDP, think it can be done. That what you have to do is like have training wheels. You have to slowly get the public used to changing the Constitution. Mm-hmm. So they've got the votes in the House of Representatives. If 
everything goes well with the economy and, and we don't have any real crises to deal with, in 2016, the LDP can take a lot of seats from the DPJ in the House of Councillors, and then you're talking about the two-thirds majorities that you need in both houses in order to modify the Constitution and send it to a national referendum to the, of the people. If you start out with Article 9, you're going to fail. But they're looking at some really tricky ideas about the environment, about furthering in individual rights that of, of various sorts to get people used to changing the Constitution. And then, four, five, six years out, bang, hitting them with an Article 9 revision and seeing how they go with it. Mm -hmm. But right now, we're not talking anything about that. We're only going to talk about reinterpretation. And even that's really fraught. Because when they made the cabinet decision on July the 1st, 2014, the country was deeply divided. It still is deeply divided. Uh, most of the population thinks that the action itself is unconstitutional. Uh, that you cannot reverse just having a cabinet decide, well, it was unconstitutional for, to have collective self-defense before, but now we changed our minds. Mm -hmm. That's something for the Supreme Court to decide, is what a lot of people say. And that's what the Constitution of Japan says, that the, the, the Supreme Court has the last say in terms of the constitutionality of any law, ordinance, or act. That's Article 81, I think. And uh, that debate is what's going to be going on in the end of, throughout this time. At the same time, when we don't know what the rules are internally in Japan, Japan's negotiating with the United States about new defense guidelines. And the U.S. side says, well, you guys haven't figured out what you can do yet. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't even begin to program the computers to work together. We can't decide what the targets are. We can't do anything with you until you figure out what you can do. And so Mr. Abe is right, standing right in the middle of it, and then he starts making statements about World War II, and that just makes everything all the more complicated. Yes. Well, Nancy, assuming that the Japanese population re begins to replenish itself within oh, the next 20 years. that's a big years, assumption. But and, and there is a drive to have a more forceful military presence, and within the guise of a collective self-defense moving, first I guess it would occur in a couple of stages, collective self-defense and then moving moving further afield, um, what do you see as the, uh, the burning issues there for getting Japan to that point where they can uh, pursue realistically collective self-defense globally? I don't know why I want to go to womenomics okay. when, I, when I hear collective defense, but I was just looking at an ad of recruiting women for the, mm -hmm. for the Japanese Defense Forces. And there, we've spent the last year with all of this anticipation of this World Assembly for Women and Abe taking Abenomics to Womenomics. So mm -hmm. I really think that um, with this dynamic of gender in Japan, uh, women are going to have perhaps a greater say in this than we can anticipate now. And I think to Michael's point about if there isn't some huge game-changing event, and, and I think that's a big if because we're looking at 2015 to the 2020, not just the Olympics, but all of these uh, sort of threshold numbers that, that the government wants to reach vis-a-vis -vis women, 30% in executive leadership. So 
I'm just thinking that there is going to be a gender dynamic here, and I also think generationally, because that's come up too about if you were born after World War II, you're a baby boomer. Mm-hmm. Uh, the baby boomer period is about 20 years, and, and the younger baby boomers are decidedly against the changes to the Constitution. They certainly don't want this to be a quick uh, change and piecemeal, maybe. But if you're an older baby boomer, yes, you may want Japan to reassert itself. But Japan is dealing with a lot of issues, almost like the canary in the coal mine, that are impacting a lot of other countries. But Japan becomes kind of the face, low fertility, which impacts a lot of other comparable industrialized democracies, but Japan becomes the the standard bearer of that. So a lot of uh, media gets into that. So Japan could become the sort of future city, future nation. This is how you can deal with a, uh, a, a declining but sustainable growth model of development, you know, not necessarily just pro-growth and going with our traditional models, but a new model. And I just worry that uh, all this collected defense rhetoric is taking away from these other issues having to do with the future as in the next generation to come. So if indeed there is that generation because people aren't repopulating here. It's an immediate impact in that anyone who talks about Japanese militism has to first off say, well, where are these soldiers and sailors going to come from? Yes. Imports. Yeah, yeah, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Where are you going to get all these people who are going to, to roam around the world causing uh, havoc? Uh, Japan just simply doesn't have that in it. However, it does have a very, very capable force, which it can maintain, of about 250,000 persons altogether. And it'll probably, in fact, increase in size just a little bit. The, but that's a sustainable force for a, a country with a population of 120 million. It's even a sustainable force for a country of 100 million, which is what we're looking at in 20 years' time. These, but in terms of a resurgence of Japanese militarism, uh, that's where the collective self-defense, uh, as viewed from the Chinese side or the South Korean side, as being an, an evil step forward becomes ludicrous. Mm-hmm. It's just not, it's not credible. Mm-hmm. But for Japanese, collective self-defense does mean something very different about the way they think about the world. But they've had to face the fact that the deal that you described, which was called, the, 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 which was basically worked out by Yoshida Shigeru, the, f- the first post-war <coughs> prime minister, of we'll stay out of military and we'll go into economic, that deal held a, a very strong place in Japanese life, mm. and still does for many people. You can just say that, and they'll, they'll nod their heads, and that's true. And it's as if everything else in, the, in this part of the world never happened. That the economic rise of South Korea, armed to the teeth, facing its deadliest enemy just across the border. They didn't have to make a trade-off. That's right. Arms, you know, arms for butter. China, armed to the teeth. Enormous outlays in terms of military. Still rising up. Taiwan, Singapore, Thailand, all these countries with massive militaries. There was no trade-off, and yet economic development of an astonishing rate has taken place. That half the population may be 
uh, what, what some uh, right-wingers call uh, anesthetized by the peace constitution. But the other half are very cognizant that around East Asia, there hasn't been that trade-off, that you can have both. And if we're in that world, don't we have to respond to that? And, but, the, but really, the mix is only 50-50 still after all these de- decades of, of growth throughout the mm-hmm. region. Well, uh, personal trainers will tell you that if you do something for a long enough period of time, generally about six weeks, it will, generally, it will gradually become a habit for you. So if, if you uh, s- find yourself sleeping in too much and you set your alarm clock and you say, I'm going to wake up at 6 o'clock every day, and you do that for six weeks, it becomes something of a habit. It's the same thing with diet or, or, or running in the morning, anything like that. And I think the same can be said perhaps for nations. And the Japanese have been in this situation for 70 years. I think it is a habit. And I think uh, they have the, the war-renouncing peace constitution and everything that is tied in with that. And I think realistically, I understand the desire for Japan to want to be strong, to project its image, to be able to defend its own borders. Um, it's, that's, a, that's a real leap. And I think there are many more things that Japan can be uh, so superlative at and to be renowned for. And I think it's, I mean, I, I can't say, but it seems to me that this protective umbrella provided by the United States, that's a pretty, pretty good deal. I mean, they're arguably the best in the world. I don't know what the cost trade-off is, but uh, to be able to come up to some sort of comparable level for example, even to send a rescue force to uh, get the, the uh, two uh, hostages, uh, I mean, that's, that's nonsense. The Japanese would never be there in, in 40, 40 years. Um, so uh, I don't know, but uh, I think the branding issues for Japan to, protect, to, to project itself to the world and also to protect itself are, uh, are really critical. I, I like the prime minister. I think he's got a very competent uh, cabinet. Um, I'm looking forward to them moving successfully forward. Um, There are a lot of challenges ahead, uh, but collective self-defense and moving that to the next two or three levels where it's going to actually make uh, any substantive difference, I think, is is really a, a stretch. You know what? Part of cool Japan for me is the fact that not one member of the Japanese self-defense forces has killed anyone. That's cool Japan. Yes. (laughs) You want to get to uncool Japan, you have the the, the first uh, Mm -hmm. taking out of someone. Because this is so, every every nation state has its myths and sort of these these grand narratives under which people live. And I think a really strong one for Japan is that Again, peaceful people, as you said, kind of selective memory. Of we're we're going to go just to the post World War II image of ourselves, mm-hmm. uh, but I I think it has worked very effectively, and and people marvel around the world at this country that has been an incredible success story, and and so that's why you have to really sit back and think about cost benefit analysis mm-hmm. here, and. Um, not just how the Chinese and Koreans are going to react. Interestingly, in 2014, there were, what, 13 million, I think it was a 
high water mark in tourism, and the top two sending countries were China oh, and South, South Korea. Korea. So you get the public opinion polls with the negativity and attitudes toward Japan, and yet they're showing up now with the weaker yen and shopping here, and so, and you know, there aren't, uh, there's relatively peace and calm in that commercial sort of transaction, so. Well, you, you said it yourself. Uh, assuming um, the military would be bolstered by more children, or f for example, women to join the work for uh, the uh, the military force, like um, in Israel. Um, I mean, even the idea of conscription for Japanese youth—that would um, I can't even imagine how uh, Japanese parents would would deal with that. Does this mean we're giving up on the third arrow? No. I'm just a simple girl from the South in the United States, and I do recall with Abenomics there were the three arrows, and right. the two were successful. Abe was sort of riding a wave here, then we had the snap elections, but structural reform, what happened to that? Oh, it's very much on the table. Okay. Uh, the first target is uh, the Japan Agricultural uh, lobby. Oh, that's easy. And it, it's easy because it's huge. It <laughs> right. is huge, um, and it deals with one of the the largest rubs in in trade internationally. Um, uh, importing Japan would like to be self sufficient in foodstuffs, and it is not. So in those areas where it is self sufficient, it wants to preserve that, and in those areas that it's not, it would like to secure that, but on its terms, not on the terms of the suppliers, and that is all essentially controlled by J.A. And uh, so that is very much in the Prime Minister's uh, sights. And the other thing I wanted to add with collective defense, and maybe it's from having taught in Israel too, I think of the big S in the room, which is security. And how do we define security? Because I, I'm living in Tokyo where I feel safer here at all times of the day and night mm -hmm. than I do anywhere else, including my own home country especially. And so when I think about security, I go from personal to national security. But I wonder if Japan, again, changes the equation too much, will that impact the way people feel about being drawn to come here? Because safety and security and personal security and just convenience and there are these, these features of the, the appeal that Japan has that I worry might change. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, one might think, you know, the self-defense forces don't have anything to do with well, personals, do they? but right. they do in, yeah. in a way oh, sure. that that it, it's hard to many people with, with countries with normal militaries can understand in that the legitimacy of the self-defense forces was not established by defending Japan. It's by disaster relief. Right, that's right. And the, yeah. it started out as a force whose legitimacy was doubted and called, un, it was just called flat out unconstitutional by the Socialist Party until it changed its tune in 1994-95 in order to become part of a, a coalition government. But, for, but and, and right, and the, the peacekeeping operations after uh, the Gulf War, where they said, oh gosh, we got to at least participate in UN PKOs. And they did extremely well. And they did extremely well. 
and an, uh, and a, a Japanese police officer was killed in one of them, and, and that set up a debate about, you know, is it right to die? Which was something that even, not just killing people, but was it okay to die in these things? But really, the, what the self-defense forces have done in terms of disaster relief and what they're expected to do in disaster relief is far more than what's the, the case of militaries elsewhere. And the self-defense forces are actually now the most trusted part of the government. Why? Because they were on the ground and they were there first and they were the biggest force and a huge force, 100,000 personnel after the tsunami. Mm -hmm. Right, absolutely. And nuclear and earthquake disaster of 311. Yes. 311 made the self-defense forces into an illegitimate force and there are people who say, let's stop there. Mm -hmm. They are now legitimate, they are entirely Everybody's behind them. That people like them. Why divide the country by putting them out outside and putting them in the job of killing people on behalf of others, not on behalf of Japan, but on behalf of others? Why ruin the brand? Exactly, because I think of the Japanese self-defense forces in the context of almost the blue helmets, right. too. And uh, you're you're actually helping me with the first chapter of my book because I'm looking at Japan's image post 311. And that was a really powerful one. Operation Tomodachi was, of With course, the, the U.S. Side. huge yeah. military operation. But as you said, that that image of the of the friendly soldier, it's similar to maybe the British Bobby, who mm -hmm. is, again, your friend. It's almost a Norman Rockwell-type picture of the uh, friendly uh, security Well, in this case, person. it's manga characters. <laughs> Prince Pickles. That's right. The, exactly. Uh, and is, I, this is the character. And, you know, going back I, I, to bring Israel into it, when I, when I taught in Israel, the students who were before me were all IDF uh, students, graduates, because, again, they are, they're conscripted at a young age. And I felt completely secure <laughs> with them before me because, again, that is a big part of the brand of Israel, mm -hmm. too, the IDF, given all of the other conflicts that take place there that, uh, that damage the brand of Israel. But the, the IDF, the young people have really bought into. And again, I think with the Japanese young people here, I'm not sure with some of the students, as many universities as, as I've guest lectured, if I could have this much engagement with them because we wouldn't really be on the same page about what we already know. And I, I think there is a bit of a history deficit. And, and understanding how the present forces work here is the key outside of also going back in history, but is the key to going forward. Is you have to first understand what is the purpose and role of the present self-defense mm -hmm. forces. And that came out this week in the, uh, on Wednesday when the education ministry put out its new guidelines for moral education, which until now had been kind of a touchy subject. And for those of us who watch Japanese politics, we were waiting for Education Minister Shimomura to finally drop the other shoe because he has a, a reputation of being an arch conservative, but he hadn't done anything in terms of really putting his mark on this administration. He'd been almost silent. Uh, and. And, and invisible. In fact, he made a visit to Yaskuni that no one saw. And he, he it only we only know about it because he later said, you know, I, I went. <laughs> uh, yes. 
so he had been off the radar until this Wednesday when he came up with these new moral education guidelines. Now, they're extremely controversial, and some of the things that the little amendments and changes that they're asking for are things on the order of loving one's country and loving the... Uh, not to, Until now, they've been saying to love the land and its culture, and now they've put in a, in a, in a little... Uh, uh, parenthesis, right. you know, our our country. What does that mean, our country? And people are there. This whole idea of protecting our country, mm-hmm. working for our country, and the reason that has ever been a big deal is because in diet and in uh, in government surveys, over and over again, they've asked this very very loaded question: If Japan were attacked, would you defend our country? Mm-hmm. And the percentages of young people who say that are very, very low, mm, mm. extremely low, less than 20%. Mm. And for conservatives, that's the sign that Japan needs a moral education mm-hmm. about protecting the, the, the moral duty of the citizen to protect his or her country. And that, for the, for in Israel, is not even a question. Right, yes. of course. But well, here, they ask a question, and the answers that they get, they don't like. Sure. Well, I think uh, Japan, unlike Israel, hasn't been exposed to lots of horrible things happening to their people and to their cities, as has happened in in Israel. And, you know, with a couple of searing experiences, you know, people's attitude changed. But I I can't see that happening anytime soon. I mean, there could be some um, incidents or false flags created to generate that sentiment, but I think that's a that's a real stretch. What, do you, what, what, what about the abductees of North Korea? Completely blows out oh. the North Korean Japan d- dialogue. There just simply can't be one until the North Koreans come clean on the disappearances that happened in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And the Japanese government insists that everything has to be cleaned up before we even talk. That's not going to happen. And if we if we're talking about traumatization and traumas. If that can stop all talk, sure, we're, we're talking about a, a, an overreacting nation. Yes. Well, just to, to, to go back a, a little bit, if you don't mind, remember when that story first started to come up and, and maybe you had heard rumors of that before that they were sending submarines over and kidnapping people. Do you remember back, back then? Hmm. And how unbelievable that was. It, North Korea coming to kidnap people? Come on. That is so outrageous and who would ever do that? Who would ever authorize that? How could they ever get away with it? And then the whole story began to take um, take a, a life of its own. And then and, 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 and the cover-up took a life of its own yes. as well. And the denial took a life of its own. And it was, I mean, even now, with, with hindsight, you still say, are you kidding me? They actually came and kidnapped people and threw them in, in boats and put them into submarines and they s- secreted them back to the, the motherland? You're kidding, right? Wow. Yeah, but, and, but the thing is, if, if, you can't, if Japan can't get over that as a nation, sure. uh, then the traumas that'll come in terms of fighting and, and dying elsewhere. It's just not gonna happen. Here's, here's an idea for you, okay? We, we've talked about collective self-defense. What is probably realistically doable in five or 10 years, the laws that would be required to do that. And in, in survey after survey, we're trying to bring young people up and make them into good soldiers for corporations or for industry 
or maybe even for, for the military. And every survey always turns out the same thing. Uh, they don't want anything to do with the three Ks, you know, kitanai, kitsui, kiken, right? Uh, dangerous, dirty, uh, difficult. Which the military is. Which the military is. <laughs> So let's, let's, you know, Japan really needs to, to focus on those things that it is really superlative at. And it needs to move into uh, the future using those strengths. And I think probably um, an, an attractive option to what it is that we're talking about, relying on the United States and, and sharing the costs and hosting U.S. soldiers in, in Okinawa or, or, or someplace on U.S. Uh, Japanese soil, is to focus on the technology. And um, what I'm getting at here is the, the drone technology in the United States, it is just flourishing, it is rocketing. And they have people that are in underground, um, they're not quite bunkers, they're air conditioned, they're maybe a 30 minute drive from their house and they've got three kids and a dog. And they come in and they joystick and they're, they're doing that. It, it wouldn't, I think it's more realistic to me to be able to train people to do that here in Japan to protect, you know, the outlying regions using technology that far surpasses even the drone technology. Or, for example, um, I can't Im imagine there, there would actually be an invasion, but uh, the, the, the dangers facing Japan are, are more geopolitical. But um, even if there was something like an invasion, an invasion you know... A cyber, the, a cyber attack. Or a, a cyber attack. attack on the, the, the power grid or something right. like that. Um, you know, the, the robot technology that the Japanese are, are excelling at. Um, you know, you give that another 10 or 15 years, and the technology that we're talking about now, I mean, look at, look at just iPhones. Look at telephones. In, in the last five years, we're flipping open the cover and, you know, playing these little games, and now we've gone to a full-fledged iPhone type of um, system. That's Which huge. Japanese parts play a large part of right. already. Mm. But the, but, the, but the thing is, it comes back to this week and the, and the tragedy in, in Syria. Is there some... There, in, here in Japan, there would be the argument that is there really some kind of moral and ethical difference between firing at somebody from 10,000 meters up using a drone or slicing their head off right next to them? And the, here in this country, the debate would be isn't that latter one more honest about what it's doing? And that's something perhaps is very hard for people outside of Japan to understand, but here, killing, just killing, is fraud. It doesn't matter the international legality or the physical ugliness of it, that we haven't killed anyone. Even on death row, very, very few. Death row is handled, it, executions are done, but it's really quiet, it's out of the way, and it's, it's seen as uh, something that you have to do. They don't mind doing it, but in terms of being able to create an enemy that's the equivalent of a, a murderer will be difficult in Japan, I think. I really don't think they, they have that no, ability to make that jump. Your, your, your argument would be, of course, I understand. Well, they do the death penalty, Killing someone should be the same. But I think they are very careful about parceling out the differences mm -hmm. of, of what is you know, defense, what is self-defense, what is retribution, that this argument would be really, really difficult for them to make, that it's okay if we do it with a robot.
I think it's an easier argument. You're doing it through a surrogate, your hands and your, your buttons. You're not actually doing it. I mean, that's the psychological clash that these soldiers are suffering in the United States. I mean, they're having tremendous problems. They go back home and, you know, they've just, I mean, there, there are lots of stories about that in the United States where the soldiers, they actually, they become disconnected with, um, with their reality because they are in war. Yes, but the thing is that in this case, the Japanese government as a policy does not create these kinds of weapons. It's simply not done. They're done, they don't, the, the, yes, this is an extremely powerful military, but they build very, very large ships with flat tops, but you can't land airplanes on them. You mm -hmm. just can't do it. So that they look like aircraft carriers, but they're not. Helicopters, mm -hmm. sure. You cannot land any kind of jet on them. They, they purposefully make an object that cannot be used in the way that most militaries would use it. The same is true with the missile forces. Right. The missiles that Japan has that are solid missiles that like the nuclear weapons that the United States and, and Russia and China possess, solid propelled rockets that go up, they're all for civilian use. Mm -hmm. Sure, they could be switched over, but there's no nuclear, uh, th there is no real nuclear program that can even be switched on. Everything is disabled here. Mm -hmm. And I think that, a, that the same mindset would take over any kind of robotic warfare capability. But we'll see. You, maybe you have the future and I'm the past. It will be seen. And I think, too, drone warfare is very controversial under the U.S. Uh, interpretation, too. Obama, his whole image and reputation has been damaged a lot by having this sort of uh, distanced approach to a lot of conflicts mm -hmm. around the world, using our technology, but... Boots on the ground. Right, boots on the ground versus the guy you described with the three children and a dog. <laughs> There's been a lot written, depending on the press in, in the U.S., but the independent, the more left-leaning press has been highly critical of Obama because they thought that Obama was going to be the great peaceful, pacifistic-type president because of his Initially. promise to draw back the forces, but he substituted the boots on the ground with this sort of, uh, again, 10,000-mile distance, and that has weakened the U.S. position in the world because we're still seen as the uh, military superpower mm -hmm. and that we can go in and uh, get involved in, in multiple conflicts at once. And, of course, inadvertently, that has impacted then this whole push from Washington to find someone like Abe, who's sort of a godsend in a, in a sense of reinterpreting the Constitution to relieve some of that burden mm -hmm. of our overreach. But yeah, the technology, woo, I was just reading about robots being used in a hotel here in Japan. The idea of the robot or the, the, the drone <laughs> driving uh, warfare in distant places, I, that perish the thought when I think about that. All right, well, that's it for today. Remember that Tokyo on Fire is available both as a podcast and as videos on our YouTube channel. Send us your thoughts and comments on Twitter using the hashtag Tokyo on Fire or by email using comments at tokyoonfire.com. Take care and see you next week.